I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. What we get to see out in nature is site-specific. What do I mean to say by that? I'm not going to see a gray whale anytime soon because I live a few hundred miles inland from the Pacific Ocean. And even though the Great Salt Lake in my region has salt water, no whales in it, nor any other sizable monsters worth looking for. So when I go looking for animals or plants, I have to say to myself, I'm going to find species and ecosystems that are very specific to any given area, sometimes down to tiny zones where a one-of-a-kind species is going to be inhabiting a a one-of-a-kind scenario. I'm saying all of this to let you know that as the next conversation gets underway here on our show about some bird stories that are happening these days in the Rocky Mountains at higher elevations, the basic storyline of this drama is probably playing out somewhere else on the planet, just with different species as the main actors. Some kind of story out there that's the same story as the one you're about to hear, just different hats, you could say. Well, we're going to be talking about birds, bird food, trees, tree seeds, cycles, the interdependencies. Apparently, there is wide fluctuation in the availability of food for birds, not just from season to season within a year, but also from year to year. Some years are lean, some are fat, and if you're a bird, that is going to matter a whole lot to you and your family of fledglings. Well, to help us understand the story here, we have with us now Bryant Olson. He is a conservation ecologist at the Tracy Aviary in the Salt Lake City area. Uh, Olson has been a birder since he picked up an Audubon Society Guide to Birds of North America. He was just 19. And for more than 20 years now, he has been actively studying and seeking out the company of birds. I I think to describe his work accurately, it's very important to say that he's a naturalist that includes birding, but he moves beyond just birding because he likes to focus on the way birds interact with their environments. He, as I mentioned, uh, works at the Tracy Aviary for the Citizen Conservation Science Program. Bryant Olson, such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure as well. I've promised that we can talk about birds, but I I think I'm going to do a a, a kind of a bait and switch here for a moment. Uh, Can we talk about trees that are kind of plotting with each other, that are kind of conspiring with each other in the amount of food they produce? Yeah. um, You know, that is is a great um, conversation to have. And really, honestly, we don't really know a lot about that right now. It's kind of groundbreaking research that's just being beginning to surface, um, but there does seem to be more going on than what is apparent on the surface about that. Um, so just to give you a little background in, in myself, so I've, like, I've, like you mentioned, I've been a naturalist since I was 19. I started birds, but I actually started plants first when I was 16, just picking up some local field guides and going hiking. And so I've always kind of looked at things from the perspective of, of habitat you know, um, like you were mentioning earlier, it's, everything is really site-specific. And habitat is the key, and, and the basis of that habitat are the plants. Understanding those interconnected relationships between plants and animals and ecosystems is key. Um, but as far as plant communication, there's, there's really a lot that we really don't know. And I, and I don't claim to be an expert on this. It's just in the work that I've done, um, we've come, we've kind of, I've noticed some patterns and there does seem to be more going on than what we know. Well, I am perfectly willing to go along with what is hypothesis here, because if we don't know exactly what plants are doing, but people are, people have been talking about this now for several years and I've bumped into these stories too. And it has to do with maybe, maybe an underground network of communication. Yeah, there's there's actually a couple different um, potentials or possibilities for ways that that plants could communicate. Um, one of the one of the topics that's been discussed recently is um, actually involves fungi. So there's underneath the forest floor, so there's all these roots of all these trees, but then there's also these um, webs of what's called mycorrhizal fungi, which is um, these are kind of symbiotic relationships between the trees and the fungi that grow through the forest mulch. And we are, we've known for a long time that these fungi are very specific, so 
certain species of fungi are very specific to certain trees. And we've also known that the fungi play a role in acquiring and breaking down um, decaying matter and therefore making those nutrients available to the, to the trees. And they also can pick up trace minerals um, that trees can't do. And some species can even fix nitrogen, which is something that plants desperately need and many can't get on their own. And so there's, for a long time, we've kind of known um, that there's kind of this symbiotic relationship between fungi and trees, and, and they're kind of helping each other. You know, the, the fungi take nutrients from the trees, not only from their decaying matter, but directly from their roots. And in return, they give the trees back um, nutrients as well that they need. Well, it's what we what they began to understand is that these fungi connections go between different individual trees, and it kind of creates a whole network. And apparently, um, trees can transfer nutrients to other trees through these fungi networks. And so there's what they call grandmother trees or hub trees. I've heard them called both, which tend to be the largest, biggest, oldest trees in the forest. They therefore have the biggest canopies, getting the most light, and they're photosynthesizing um, and creating, you know, carbohydrates and, and nutrients from photosynthesis. And they're actually giving those um, excess nutrients to their, to their um, offspring trees that are younger and don't get as much light. So there does seem to be this, this interconnected web going on in the forest floor. And they've done some experiments where they've, you know, encased trees in little plastic bubbles and put carbon-14 radioactive isotopes in there and, and watched those and been able to read those isotopes in nearby trees. But it's an interesting relationship because it's some trees participate and some trees don't. Um, and different species of trees share nutrients as well. So, so in the in the example that I was talking about, the um, birch trees share nutrients with conifer trees, with Douglas fir. This was in British Columbia, where that research was done. And you know, and so it's not necessarily it's just a really complex web that we just we're just beginning to understand. Can I go back to this example you just gave of the birch tree and a conifer? The birch is deciduous. So we're talking about right. really radically different species that are cooperating in some way. Yeah, exactly. That's what's so fascinating. I don't think, you know, um, certainly I didn't expect that result. Um, but that does seem to be the result from the radioactive isotope studies that those two trees are actually sharing nutrients. And it kind of makes sense. Um, so like, for instance, in the spring, you know, the, the conifers kind of get a head start because they're photosynthesizing earlier because they're evergreen, and they can kind of help the birch tree get going. And then um, the birch tree, uh, maybe it's better at photosynthesizing, or perhaps it can get some nutrients that the, the um, dug fir can't get, and so they actually share their nutrients. I find that fascinating. Well, me too. And uh, this is leading up to the idea of not just the happenstance of their sharing food, but there there might be some signaling, I understand, also going on between uh, from one trunk to yeah. the next. So so part of the, so one of the ways they could share resources is, you know, so obviously they're sharing resources. And if their if their seed crops are based on the available nutrients, that means that they could kind of um, share enough resources with each other to all make a good crop. Um, there's also been some research into pheromones. So there's some research that's been done down at um, the Lytle Ranch Preserve Station in southwestern Utah where they, um, they were studying wild native tobacco plants. And they found that the, the tobacco plants had the ability to change their pollinators by, and they would communicate this. All the, all the tobacco plants in their study plots would all do this synchronistically. Um, and they do that by changing the, the type of sugars that they put into their flowers. And so they were changing from a hawk moth to hummingbirds. And, that, and they did this by, by certain individuals would release pheromones. And the other plants would receive those pheromones and release them as well. And so the whole population would just, within a matter of of days just switch their sugars to attract a different pollinator. 
And so they were definitely communicating um, with each other. Yeah, and, and, and the key in this story that makes the plot really a thick plot is the word synchronicity that you mentioned, that they're doing this in concert with each other at the same time. And, and, and that's where it gets really interesting with uh, stories I've heard about seed production happening, kind of where you get a bumper crop in a certain year and other years not uh, as many seeds. Yeah, so there's, there's a couple different strategies that, that trees do use. So, um, so let's just, just think about crops, first of all. So every year a tree produces seeds, and those seeds could potentially become a new tree, and that's how they keep their genes going through time and keep the forest alive. Um, but there, then there's all these seed predators, so squirrels, various birds, that, that deliberately seek out and eat those seeds. Now, if you're a tree, if you make the same amount of seeds every year, then your seed predators or basically their populations are going to build until they basically wipe out all your seeds every year. And so what we found, and, and we, we actually found this directly in the research that we're doing at Alta Skiria, is that trees kind of stagger their seed production. So some years they have a really big crop, which is more than their seed predators can handle. Those are called bumper crop years. And so they basically are overwhelming their, their seed predators. And then in the next few years, they produce almost no seeds. And so, they're, they're pred so those seed predators, their populations will diminish, you know, because if they just made a bumper crop every year or every other year, their, their predator population would just stay high. But if they kind of lean them out for a few years and their populations drop, and then they can overwhelm them again. So it seems to be a strategy of kind of um, manipulating their seed predators. Because uh, another thing that many seed predators do is they cache seeds for later. And so if you can, like squirrels and also some birds like Clark's nutcrackers, they'll harvest in the fall. They'll just harvest as many seeds as they can, way more than they can eat. You know, there was a Clark's nutcracker in, I believe, Colorado that, that was systematically watched uncounted and it cached over 90,000 seeds in one fall. Oh my gosh, that's which a very... <laughs> is way more than it can possibly eat. It's just because they don't know when there's going to be another big crop again and so when they see a big crop they just cache as many as they can because it, you know, the next year might be no crop. Yeah, and, and another and story, way, we don't even have time for the story today of how that Clark's <laughs> nutcracker is going to go back and find all of those caches. That's actually a great Great story. Um, they actually grow new brain cells every year to remember their caches. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, so you've got these birds, and I, I told you we would. Uh, th this was coming through the back door to talk about the trees before we ever got to the <laughs> birds. Uh, but I like it because uh, now we're getting into this th these fluctuations in the food supply for the birds, and that's where, right. with your background watching birds, you start watching bird populations and, and seeing a correlation here. Yeah, exactly. So um, specifically, we've been doing research at Alta Ski Area. I work for Tracy Avery's Conservation Science Program. We have a citizen science project that we've been running up at, at Alta Ski Area since 2014, where we do bird monitoring year-round. And, you know, kind of coming into it, I've always known that the bird populations fluctuate. That's kind of the adaption of flight, right, is that if your food runs out, you can go somewhere else and find new food. Um, and so we've always known that birds kind of move around based on food, but I didn't really fully understand that. I still don't. Um, but um, there was some assumptions that I was making that I think might have not have been completely accurate. So the, the assumption that I've made and, and that I think many people make is that cone crops of conifers are driven exclusively by climate. So snowpack here in the Rockies, um, frost in the fall, stuff like that. Well, what we found at Alta is that um, at least high snowpacks did not seem to be the determining factor. Um, there was, and the, well, there's basically, it's a tale of two trees. So there's spruce trees and there's limber pines. And they're different, they're different trees and they have kind of a different cone crop cycle because it, the limber pine actually takes two years or more to ripen their cones, whereas the spruce just makes a cone every, or it can ripen a cone every single season. And their cones are very different. They're, the seeds within them are very different. 
Um, and what we found is with the spruce, they kind of have this biannual cycle where every other year they kind of make a good crop, and then the next year they kind of make a poor crop. But then the good crops vary. Some years there's tons of them, and some years it's just kind of a, a moderate crop. And there's a there's a specific bird called a red crossbill, and they're found all across the entire northern hemisphere from um, Mexico, actually I think even Guatemala, all the way to tree line in Alaska, and then they're found all across Siberia and Scandinavia. Wherever there's conifer forests in the northern hemisphere, there's red crossbills. And is this I the mean, bird where the beak, the kind of the, the, the upper beak and the lower part of the beak, they kind of uh, like they're, they look like scissors, but they pass each other? Exactly. Yeah. And they, these, tr- these birds are um, almost the exclusive food they can eat is conifer seeds. They're, they're so adapted for eating that food that it's pretty much their only food. So their bill is designed to open those cones and they stick their little tongue in there and pull out the seed. And so we can actually see by the presence or absence in the number of crossbills what the cone crop of the spruce is doing. Um, and some years when there's basically no food, there's no crossbills at all. And then some years when there's a really good crop, there's a lot of crossbills. And then in some years when there's just a few cones, there's just a few kind of sporadic crossbills. And this, this is getting back to the idea that the trees are doing this in concert with synchronicity. When you say, I mean, you've got to have a whole forest play in this game, right? Right, yeah. So if, it's, if each individual tree just kind of did its own thing based on its available nutrients, then, um, you know, the, the crossbills would just go to the, the tree up the slope, you know. But the trees seem to, to, to synchronize their cone crops. So it's not just the cone crops at Alta, but we also do um, study work in City Creek Canyon, which is about 20 miles to the north of Alta. And what we see directly is whatever's happening at Alta is also happening at City Creek Canyon. So that's 20 miles away. They're different elevations, so it's different species of trees. So in, in City Creek, it's mostly Douglas fir. And, but somehow these, these two des, you know, distant areas are doing the exact same thing. So when there's a big crop of, of spruce at Alta, there's a big crop of Douglas fir at, at City Creek. When there's a poor crop of spruce at Alta, there's a poor crop of Douglas fir at, at City Creek. And so there is, there's, there's a regional-wide synchronicity. Now, how big and how far that stretches, I don't really know. Um, my experience is kind of limited to the Salt Lake Valley area because that's where I'm based. But I do think that there is a larger scale to that synchronicity. Don't you kind of think, though, that there has got to be an adjacent region, a safety net for these crossbills to go to? Otherwise, they would all perish and never be seen again. Um, yeah, there very well could be. Um, and for instance, like this year. So we've actually had two years in a row now where we've had a really poor spruce crop. And there are no crossbills almost anywhere in Utah, at least um, that I know of. I think there's been a couple in, in some like residential cemetery type areas up near Logan because they're planted trees that they get irrigated and they're kind of on their own little cycle. But there's very, very few crossbills. And where they go, um, they just kind of... They wander the continent. They've actually found that these these different crossbills wander the, the entire North American continent, looking for a good crop of conifer seeds. We can't really call them migrants because their their patterns don't really necessarily follow a seasonal movement. They just kind of wander around, and they'll actually, if they find a good crop of of conifers, they'll nest and have babies in the dead of winter just because that's when the food's available to them. Wow. Those are survivalists. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm wondering if there is something in your realm of uh, scientific inquiry where you look at these cycles that are not the annual cycles. Is there some term for these larger cycles that might be, you know, an oak tree doing its thing every five years with a bumper crop? Uh, These larger cycles are fascinating to consider. They really are fascinating. Um, Unfortunately, it's kind of beyond... The, the scale of the work that we do with our bird monitoring. Um, I would love it if, you know, some grad students out there were listening to this and decided to take that, that field of research on to understand not only how, tr- how plants and trees synchro- synchronistically 
crop together, but how different species are involved in that. Because there's there's so many actors at play here that it, it really is a really complex question. Um, and hopefully, as you know, future generations are inspired to take on those questions. Another story I want to talk with you about in just a moment here is the bark beetle story in the western states. And we're going to do that with Bryant Olson after a short break here on Constant Wonder. Stay tuned. I'm Marcus Smith. Thanks for listening today to Constant Wonder. My guest right now is Bryant Olson, a conservation ecologist at the Tracy Aviary in Salt Lake City. Bryant, I, I mentioned the bark beetle, and if somebody is unacquainted with what's going on, all you have to do these days, if you live out in the Rocky Mountain region, is you go backpacking out into the backcountry, and you just look at the higher elevations. I've seen places where uh, old forests that, that, that stretch for miles may have, well, I've been in places where you look at the mountainside and and maybe 50 to 80% of the trees are completely denuded of their their needles, they're dead, and this has been done by beetles. What's happening, and do you have any uh, scenario to paint for us about the prospects of saving these forests? Um, well, I'll, I'll take the first question first. Um, so bark beetles have always existed, and they've they've always um, there's always been outbreaks. Um, there's actually a couple different species of bark beetles. There's spruce beetle and there's pine bark beetle. And they kind of attack different trees and attack them in different ways. Um, but they have always, they kind of co-evolved with conifer forests and they've been around for a long time. But up until recently, they they had fairly small scale outbreaks. So you'd have, you know, maybe one mountain range would have an outbreak and then um, they would that forest would, would have a pretty high mortality rate. And then maybe, you know, a, a couple hundred miles away, there'd be another one, you know, a decade or two later. Well, starting in the 90s, we started to see these very large-scale bark beetle outbreaks. And it, it's actually not just in the Rockies. It's actually throughout the entire northern hemisphere across the taiga of of Canada and Alaska and Siberia and Russia and Scandinavia. This is happening all over the, wherever conifers grow, there's these large scale bark beetle outbreaks happening. And it kind of started, like I said, in the nineties and it's just kind of has gotten worse and worse. It seems like it's, it's truly is heartbreaking to just kind of go back to one of your old favorite forests and just see that, you know, 80% of the trees that are over, um, two feet in diameter or dead. And um, <clears throat> so there's the, the main driving factor is trees are stressed. So when, when trees are not healthy, um, the bark beetle populations um, get higher. So they, the, the, the beetles need a stressed tree. So drought can be a big factor that stresses them. Um, but, you know, we've always had drought in the West um, some of our droughts are, are getting more severe, it seems, but it, that drought itself doesn't explain the bark beetles. And, and what, we've, what they've actually done is they've seen that our winters are getting less cold. And, and formerly, those winters were really critical in controlling the bark beetles because they would actually freeze and kill the larvae in the winter, um, at least some of them. And so now with, with our winters not getting as cold, we still get cold, but we don't have these really prolonged, deep cold snaps that we used to do. And so the, the cold doesn't get deep down in, inside the wood of the tree as deep as it used to and kill as many of these larvae. And, and so these, it seems like every year um, we get new bark beetle outbreaks and their populations are just exploding all across the Northern Hemisphere and, and particularly here in Utah, um, the the Uinta Mountains have been just hit really hard by bark beetles. The the mountains of southern Utah have been hit really hard by both spruce and pine bark beetles. Up in Wyoming, I've seen huge outbreaks in the Wind River Mountains. Um, so yeah, it's it's happening all over the world, and including in our backyard. And, and you kind of describe this as maybe the older trees are more susceptible. Yeah, young trees have um, more vigor. They have more, you know, just like young people, 
they have more um, energy, more stamina. Um, and so the bark beetles kind of go after the older trees. So trees over 80 years old um, are the most vulnerable to the bark beetles. And they, they actually use pheromones. When they find kind of a, an appropriate tree that's, the, that's stressed and weak, they actually release a pheromone, and then that will attract all the other bark beetles to that tree. But then when it gets full of bark beetles, they release another pheromone that says, this tree's occupied, go find your own tree. Um, and so, and, you know, going back to that conversation we had earlier about the hub trees, you know, killing off the big old trees in the forest is going to have a pretty significant impact on the forest um, ecosystem. And just to bring this full circle back to birds, I'm just imagining when you have a, uh, a forest that's stressed and the older trees are dying off, you just have, even with those cycles of bumper crops for cones, fewer trees, fewer cones, fewer birds. Yeah, pretty much exactly. There's you know, when you have a, a 50 to 70% mortality of older trees, the older trees are producing most of the cones, um, you're going to have less cones um, produced every year, regardless of whether it's a bumper year or whether it's a, a poor year. Um, dead trees can't make cones. It's, it's pretty simple. I would imagine that in your shoes, it would be, on the one hand, exhilarating to see these relationships in nature, in ecosystems, in, in the habitats, and in the interdependencies, and at the same time, a little bit overwhelming because you have to consider what the trees are doing, what the bugs are doing, what the birds are doing, what the weather's doing. You almost have to be a climatologist, too. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, there are lots of questions. I, I have lots of questions. The more I, I study birds the more questions I have about um, their ecosystems, how they interact with things, and how they adapt to a changing world. Um, they've been around for 90 million years, and they've um, proven pretty adaptable. So I do have some hope. And for all of this, Bryant, as you investigate these systems, are you also thinking about the human interface with them in a big way? I mean, it's a lot of people kind of do this false dichotomy. There's like civilization and there's nature out there. But I see that we're at least side by side and there's got to be some, it's got to be a two-way street between humanity and these forests we've been talking about. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of ways that we're dependent upon these forests. Um, Humans are not separate from nature. We are bound by the laws of nature, whether we like to acknowledge that or not. Um, every breath you take, that oxygen that you're getting in your lungs is coming from plants, and particularly from forests. Forests are the lungs of the earth. Um, and the northern forest, you can they actually can look at the CO2 levels in the atmosphere, and every summer, those great northern forests that we've been talking about basically take a deep breath and turn t millions of tons of carbon dioxide into oxygen. And as if, if those trees all die, um, we're going to die too. We're not going to be able to breathe eventually. Um, so, and then there's, you know, lumber. We need lumber for construction. We need lumber for all sorts of things. Um, we need trees. We need healthy, vibrant, living ecosystems not only for our health and well-being, both mentally and physically, but also for our economies. And just one thing that maybe you can help me with, I've often mused on the idea that we think of trees as needing water, but, but trees, don't they also, in a region, help uh, regulate the watershed in the way that helps the soil to retain water, too? Yeah, exactly. They are the sponges. So um, without trees, a lot of our water just kind of falls on the, on the rocks and just runs off down the rivers and out to the ocean. But with, with trees and um, vegetation, they, they kind of soak up that, that water and kind of hold it, and they increase um, humidity levels as they evapotranspirate that. They release the water during photosynthesis. Um, they also shade the ground, and that lowers temperatures and lower and raises humidity rates. Um, so um, forests in particular, in our mountains, in the West at least, are, are critical for providing water for our cities and, and people and as well as ecosystems. So is the presence of birds in the coniferous forest 
in any way an indicator, kind of a bellwether for what's going on in the health of the system generally? Exactly. Yeah, that is why we do the bird monitoring that we do. Is we we use birds as indicators of forest health, of ecosystem health. So we can look at bird populations. We can see their trends over time, their short-term trends, long-term trends, and we can assess, you know, the the biological productivity of these ecosystems and see if they're healthy or if they're not healthy, if they're declining. Brian Olson, such a pleasure to visit with you. Thank you for the information and the explanations. I've enjoyed this very much. Me too. Thank you. Brian Olson, a conservation ecologist at the Tracy Aviary in Salt Lake City, and he works for the Tracy Aviary's Citizen Conservation Science Program. The expression eagle-eyed isn't just an idiom. Eagles actually see vastly more detail and a whole lot more color than you or I do. We're going to talk about eagles with one of the most famous bird watchers around these days, Mr. Sibley of the Sibley Bird Guide. Stay tuned for more Constant Wonder. Welcome back to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. It's great advice not to sleep at the wheel, but if you were a bird, you might be able to sleep on the wing. That's just one of the remarkable things I learned when speaking with David Allen Sibley, an artist, a birder, the famed author of the Sibley Field Guides. His latest contribution is a book titled What It's Like to Be a Bird. And let's start here with the question about why eagles see so much better than we do. You know, we know the expression eagle-eyed. It means very, very sharp vision, the ability to spot details at a distance. And eagles have, they have more receptors in their eyes, so they're seeing at a higher resolution than we do. So they do see more detail, about five times as much. But I was surprised to learn, you know, that's that's pretty widely known. I had known that for a long time, that eagles see more detail. What I didn't know is that they see more color. More of the receptors in their eyes are the rods for color vision. So they're not just seeing more detail, they're seeing a kind of technicolor, like 80% color, where what we see is only 5% color. It must be just a completely different experience for them. What they're seeing, uh, there's no way we can imagine it. They also see um, their eyes point in different directions. They don't see very well straight ahead of them. They see better off to the side on each side. And they see two points of detail with each eye. So we see one point of detail and both of our eyes focus on the same spot. So all we can see is one tiny spot of detail and a lot of peripheral vision all generally in front of us the eagles are seeing almost 360 degrees around them in peripheral vision because their eyes are on the sides of their heads. So they're seeing almost everything around them. They have a small blind spot at the back of their head. And then each eye is seeing two spots of detail. So they're constantly processing four different points of detail, all in different directions, generally off to the side and ahead of them. And their vision straight ahead is not all that good. So when an eagle wants to really focus its attention and and look at you in in detail, it will turn its head to the side, kind of cock its head and look at you with one eye to focus that one spot of detail in one eye on the object of interest. So all of that was just just the kind of revelation of what's actually going on in these birds' experience. Some of it we can imagine and some of it we really can't. But it's it's a very different experience from ours. You get into such nitty-gritty detail about behavior. I would never have thought to even ask the question, what does a bird do in a storm? Who's asking these kinds of questions in the first place? <laughs> Yeah, that one I hear whenever I live in Massachusetts, so we get blizzards and hurricanes and some nasty weather. And whenever there's a big storm, um, I can pretty much count on someone asking me, what do the birds do during this storm? 
it's something that people wonder about if they're if they're aware of birds and and um, and a big storm comes along. But yeah, birds generally they they can sense the dropping air pressure when a storm is approaching, and and their response to that is just to eat more. They eat more. They build up fat. They sort of store energy for for a long siege. So they eat as much as they can as the storm approaches, and then they just find as much shelter as they can. It might just be a, a tangle of twigs sort of sheltered from the wind, or for a like an ocean bird out on the beach, they'll just find a spot where they can um, hide behind a sand dune or behind a driftwood log and get out of the wind a little bit and just try to sit there and wait out the storm. Their main strategy is just to uh, stock up on food and then find some shelter and wait for the storm to pass. It just amazes me to think that somebody could be observant enough to say, oh, I know why that bird is eating so much today. It knows a storm is coming. I mean, how do they do that? Yeah, if here in the east, and I assume it's similar in the west, that when a snowstorm is coming, if you have bird feeders in your yard, the bird feeders are at their absolute busiest um, just in the few hours before the snow starts. The birds know that the storm is coming and they know they can sense that there's a reason to stock up on food. So your feeder, your bird feeder area will just be buzzing with activity in those few hours before a storm begins. And once the storm starts, the activity tapers off um, as the, the height of the storm. And then when there's a little break, birds will come back out. But the, yeah, some researchers, I think they had birds in captivity and they, they watched, they were monitoring these birds, these captive birds for all kinds of uh, reactions to dropping air pressure. So they could monitor what the birds were doing as the air pressure changed. And they found that there was really the only significant change in behavior was that the birds uh, ate more food as the pressure dropped. I want to talk about birds sleeping. And I don't even know where to begin here, but the idea that birds can sleep and fly at the same time or something like that? Yeah, they... So birds have the ability to, to sleep with just one half of their brain at a time. So there's a left and right side of the brain, and, and birds have the ability to put one side of their brain asleep. We could say they're half asleep, but I guess research shows that they're really three-quarters asleep. <laughs> one side of the brain is completely asleep. The other side is partly asleep, resting and, and getting all the benefits of sleep but they can have one eye open and watch for danger and react when, when they need to. There's several species of birds now that are documented to fly for days or even months continuously. Some species of swifts, these small birds that they're similar to swallows, but related to hummingbirds, um, and they, they live in the sky. They eat insects and other spiders, things that they find way up high in the air. And research has found that several species, at, at least, when they migrate south to the tropics for the winter, they spend the entire winter flying and don't land until they come back to their nesting site the following spring. So they might spend eight or nine months in the air continuously. Even at uh, night? At night, yes. <laughs> yep, 24-7. Well, that is a half-brain thing to do. <laughs> I would say. Yeah. You know, this is just, I still don't know how somebody could follow a swift long enough to know whether it cheated. <laughs> yeah, they have some, some amazing technology now, these miniaturized tracking devices that can be um, attached to a bird. So the bird carries this little device with it through the whole year. And on some Larger species can carry a device that's big enough to actually send a signal out that can be um, monitored. But small species like swifts, it's usually a, a little device that just records the location. And the researchers then have to catch that same individual bird again the following spring when it returns and take off the device, which has stored all of the information about where the bird went. 
and from that they know that the bird was continuously moving that it never stopped moving it was always traveling and that then infers that it was flying uh, swifts can't walk so the only way they can move is by flying um, there was a study on a larger species called frigate birds and they carried bigger bigger devices that could record a lot more information and in those birds they were flying over the Indian Ocean and they flew continuously for days at a time and the devices they were carrying actually monitored their brain activity so they know in that case that the frigate birds were not sleeping very much but they were sleeping some while they were flying and usually with just half their brain but sometimes they went to sleep with their whole brain they just went completely asleep while they're in the air thousands of feet up above the Indian Ocean and they just get up high enough to a position where they're safe and fall asleep <laughs> <laughs> for a few minutes. Uh, not even with autopilot, just asleep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, this whole business of flight, I mean, that's where we humans began, I think, when it comes to our fascination with birds, you know, the Icarus and Daedalus and all of that. We just, uh, how will we be able to mimic that flight? Uh, yeah. I, I remember when I was first picking up uh, a Peterson field guide, reading just a, a certain line about gulls, about seagulls. And it just said that seagulls are among the, the most superb of aerialists. I love the language of that, to think of a, a seagull as a superb aerialist. I'd never thought about that before. And yeah. then then later watching, uh, this this business of uh, about the most remarkable flyers, are, are there some clunky birds that just don't fly well? I mean, I'm not talking about <laughs> chickens. I'm talking about birds you would expect to fly well, but they just goof up. Well, there, there's a complete range of species that are superb aerialists like the gulls and, and then those that sort of fly as a last resort and flight is, <laughs> is a chore that they do just to get from one place to another and then they sit. And there's actually a species that, that has a big connection to uh, the Salt Lake right there in, in Utah um, called eared grebe. It's a little, little water bird um, only about 10 inches long. And most of the North American population moves to the Great Salt Lake and Mono Lake in California. There's two places, both alkaline lakes, with big explosions of brine shrimp and brine flies in the fall. So right now there's huge amounts of um, food of, of these these brine shrimp and brine flies in the lake. And the birds are there eating those, fattening up. But the eared grebes, they have fairly small wings, all the grebes as a group. They, they have small wings. They're not very good flyers. They often travel by swimming or, and diving underwater rather than flying. They'll, they'll choose to swim rather than fly to escape. But they need to get from the Great Salt Lake to the Pacific Ocean where they spend the winter. And they're eating and fattening up and gaining weight and not flying at all for weeks. It's happening right now. Um, and then I think it's in October, the food in the lake dwindles and then they, their body transforms. Their digestive tract shrinks so they actually can't eat anymore. They exercise their wings and build up their flight muscles and they they have to do all this with enough stored fat to make this flight over land nonstop from the Great Salt Lake to the Pacific Ocean. And they do that taking off in the evening at sunset. They pick one night and hundreds of thousands of birds will take off together and start flying. And they really, they only have one shot if they get partway out and decide it's not right, they can't turn around and come back because they've used up a lot of their fuel. They have to go. It's, it's all or nothing when they go. And that's, that's their system. So they, they spend most of the year not flying at all and then get up on one night in October and make this hundreds of miles long flight nonstop over the desert to get to the ocean. That's just plain crazy. 
That's, that's yeah. what, I have to say, one of the most beautiful things I ever saw was an eared grebe on the Provo River down near Utah Lake, and it must have been a mother. It had, oh, two or three little tiny uh, uh, grebes on its back uh, swimming around, and just uh, with those tufts of feathers or whatever they are above the eyes. It was just, just gorgeous yeah. behind the eyes. Yeah. Well, let's talk just a little bit about uh, birds not falling out of trees, because for the ones that do sleep on a branch rather than flying around, like the frigate bird, uh, they don't fall. They don't tumble out. Yeah. And, you know, that was one of the things when you asked earlier about things that were surprising to me as I as I researched this book, that that's one of them. That uh, My whole life I had heard that birds have an automatic gripping mechanism that when they bend their leg to crouch down on a perch the tendons automatically tighten to grip the perch so their toes clamp down on the perch and that's how they hang on and and stay on their perch while they sleep but it turns out that's not true at all (laughs) they don't grip the perch tightly while they sleep they just their toes sort of drape loosely over the perch and even while they sleep, they're, they're just balancing. They have an incredible sense of balance. And even as they're you know, sitting on a tiny twig that's swaying in the wind, even while they're sleeping, they still balance on that twig. Their toes are not gripping tightly. They're just balancing. Uh, and one of the things that helps them do that is that they actually have a, a second balance sensor they, they have one in their inner ear like us. They have a second one in their pelvis. So they, have, they can monitor their body movement separately from their head movement. And they have an extra, an extra input in their, uh, their balance. Well, let me give you a problem here to solve for me. Years ago, I was fishing, also on the Provo River, when three tree swallows came swooping down and landed side by side on the tip of my fishing pole. And I thought this was beautiful and I watched them for a while, but I was fishing and I wanted to catch a fish. And at some point I thought I've got to shake these birds loose. So I started gently to kind of wiggle my fishing rod around to see if I could shake them loose. And I got more vigorous and more vigorous and they, they went, I went from side to side and I went up and down. I went backwards and forwards and they just never let go. I had assumed they were just hanging on for dear life but maybe they were just balanced and perched there. Yeah, well, they do. I mean, they do use their toes to grip a perch, and uh, when they're when birds are active and hopping around, they actually um, their their body weight is is tipped slightly back, so they're they're actually a little bit a little like a coiled spring almost. They're they're leaning back and they're holding themselves on the perch by gripping it with their toes. So that's when, when they're awake and active, small songbirds like chickadees, warblers, jays, they all kind of lean back just slightly and grip the perch with their feet. When they're truly asleep and the perch is stationary and, and calm, they relax and their toes just uh, uh, are loosely held around the perch. But I imagine that I'm guessing, but I think in that in the case you're describing of the fishing pole bouncing around, the swallows they wanted to stay on the perch, and they're they're probably used to motion like that if they're you know perched on a long uh, willow switch or a, a reed that's getting blown around in the wind. They they really have to hang on sometimes to stay on their perch. So, what you were doing with the fishing rod was probably not very different from what they experience on a long flexible perch that they might choose in the wild and they were probably just using their toes to really grip it and and hang on as it swayed back and forth and bounced around why do you want to share this what is it what are you hoping for when you invite people to observe not just uh, marks of identification, but to really get into the way birds behave, what, it, what it's like from their perspective. In a way, it's kind of a selfish approach. I, I, I create the books that I want, would want for myself. I get excited about an idea, a concept, and, and then the details of what's going into the book and how to put it all together. 
and the information that's in it. And for me, I, I get a tremendous amount of satisfaction out of learning and discovering and putting different ideas together to make connections and kind of discover new connections in this tapestry of the natural world that we're surrounded by. That That's the, the biggest satisfaction to me of nature study is just making those connections and, and finding, finding ways that the natural world makes sense and explanations for things and understanding. It's, it's all about a deeper understanding. So if I'm excited about something like that while I'm working on the book, I, I can hope that other people who share my, my interest, my approach, will also be excited about it. Yeah, someone like me. <laughs> yeah. I want a little icing on the cake. Is there some truth to some statement here that I'm about to make that birds can individually move or position feathers? Yeah, they can. Each feather on a bird's body has tiny muscles in the skin, that, uh, just under the skin, that, that can control the, the position of that feather. And most of the feathers, uh, at least what I observe in the field, most of the feathers sort of move as a group. So a bird might, it might raise a whole cluster of feathers on its back, or a jay will raise the feathers on the top of its head, which raises its crest to make its crest stand straight up and then lay down. But individual feathers can't really move separately from their neighbors because all the feathers are kind of overlapping and laying against each other like shingles on a roof. So feathers tend to move in, in unison with their neighbors. But yes, birds do have the ability to, they have very pretty precise control over uh, how their feathers move, whether the feathers are lifted up or, or laid down closer to the body. David Allen Sibley, one of the preeminent bird experts alive today. His knowledge and his artistry are on full display in his field guides. He's pretty much the guy that Roger Tory Peterson passed the birding baton to. Sibley's latest book is titled What It's Like to Be a Bird from Flying to Nesting, Eating to Singing, What Birds Are Doing and Why. What drives people to climb the highest mountains? I mean, apart from a Rogers and Hammerstein song. It's a bit more complex than people generally suppose, not just because the mountains are there. We're going to speak with the first American woman to summit K2 when we come back to Constant Wonder. Stay tuned. 